Lord, I thank you for this gathering, this time we have together to study the topic of biblical human sexuality. Pray, O Lord, that you would mold our minds and our thinking according to your word and not according to our feelings or the spirit of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. The question I got uh, that I actually been asked a few different ways, but I thought was just as practical as can be. Last week's topic was on temptation and talking about uh, that reality flowing from our sinful desires that we have to acknowledge as such. Um, what are some practical ways to defeat temptation? Could you say more about that? Because I talked about um, the general structure, what temptation is, the reality of it, to be aware, so we could be honest and, and uh, confront it that way. But I thought it was a good question. Just some real practical ways, ways that really kind of topic that I talk about every day with people, and I tell myself every day because these are the, the nuts and bolts, living the Christian life stuff. Um, so take it out of the realm of sexual temptation, although... We can keep it in the realm of that, but then fill in some other areas of temptation because what I'm going to say applies to all of these. It could be uh, addictions to things, it could, whether it be some, you know, food, it could be substance, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. It could be um, buying stuff. Um, just constantly have to buy stuff. Uh, you have a desire for more stuff. Remember, the, the desires we have are where the sin is, and that then moves itself into its actions. And so temptations feed off of whatever those weaknesses or those, um, those desires or lusts we have. And it could be for more stuff. It could be for, for things. It could be covetousness, which makes us want to have new things so, or other things. So it could be as simp- simple as wanting to go to the store all the time to buy more things because it makes you feel better. So it's not just sexual satisfaction or substance or sensual satisfaction like food or whatever have you. Uh, drugs, things like this. It could be something like that where we just go on a buying spree because we just think we're going to be happier with more stuff. And then we feel guilty when we look in our closet because there's shoes we don't wear and things like that. Um, these are common issues that we deal with, in, in especially in a suburban, upper-middle-class type area where there's just, we have a lot of money at our disposal. No matter how little money you have, you have more than most people on earth. Um, and so that makes it a challenge in that area. It could be anger issues. It, you could be <clears throat> struggling with anger um, in, in, in outbursts for various reasons. Um, it could be about telling the truth, lying could be gambling, could be any number of things. So whatever the temptation is, um, here are some practical ways to deal with that, given what we know to be true about our sinful desires. I hope you see why it's so important to have a proper view of our desires so that we can then uh, address temptations on that level. Um, the first thing I would tell anybody when it comes to fighting temptation in any of these arenas, and you're going to say, oh, of course you're going to say this, but give me a chance. You have to avail yourself of the means that God gives you to help fight those things. You must. That's starting point. And we call them the means of grace. They're, we call them ordinary. Not that they're ordinary in any way, just that they're so, ba- so basic and so pervasive in God's word to describe to us, Christians, avail yourself of my word, God says, Avail yourself of talking to me at any time, asking for help, confessing your sins, and avail yourself of the sacraments that I give to the church because every time you participate in communion, the gospel's preached afresh. You're, you're tasting and touching um, a real element that reminds you that it's real that Jesus paid this price for you. So when you have that regularly, your mind's washed with the water of the word. Um, the t- many of the temptations that come will be from the spirit of the age telling you that this thing that you're tempted by isn't that bad and you're going to get that voice. Now, your sinful flesh will meet that voice that comes from outside and say, yeah, and then you go down the road with it. Whereas when you're washing the water of the word in the gospel, which isn't just um, the do's of the Bible, it's what's been done for you helps you operate from a, different, a whole different perspective in how you view the temptations that come. 
Um, it's, I'm not saying it's easier to say no to sin, but when I recognize what Christ has done for me, what he has provided for me, even when I say to myself, even if I sin like this, um, Jesus loves me and has died for me, that actually, that process of saying, it doesn't lead me to license. It leads me to, I, why, why should I, would do, why would I want to do this and defame his name in this light? He's not going to, he's not, he loves me so much that he still won't, that process of recognizing the truth of the gospel will actually help you resist temptation when it comes. So availing yourself of the means of grace is the first and foremost. When I'm talking about prayer, not only asking the Lord to help you, but when you confess your sins in prayer, when we do so in the service, you're saying out loud something that you're laying hold of, you're, you're owning for yourself. Before God, you're saying to God, I know I'm a sinner, worthy of your punishment. That process of praying to God about this reminds us of it. Again, it all brings back the, the fullness of what we need to always recognize, our offense to God and his satisfaction in Christ. And I wanna, I'm in Christ. And so that exercise can't be done enough to help you when the voices come and they meet with your sinful flesh that want to meet it. It doesn't take much for us to, we only need a little bit of affirmation from the outside to help us with the, the feelings we have, the desires we have, because those voices will tell you it's fine. Go do it, whatever it is. So when I'm talking about the word and I'm talking about prayer and communion or, or the sacrament of baptism as it relates to uh, entrance into the covenant community, and every time we participate in one, we see what that means and the special identification of one with the body of Christ. All of this is baseline level. And I say this to you because I'm just telling you pastorally, and I know it's anecdotal, so you take it for what it's worth. But so many of the times as someone is, where, where I'm talking to somebody who's really struggling with giving into temptation, um, yeah, 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 pastor. But they're not doing the stuff that we're talking about. They're, they're just saying, I know that's true. I've tried that. And now, that's not what we mean here. This is the ongoing maintenance level. Just, you know, this is not like, I tried that pill. Give me, give me another pill. No, this is the ongoing base level maintenance. So if you're not doing these things, involving these things, you know, going to other things that I'll mention, well, the things I'll mention are going to keep pointing you back to that. Because it's so basic that it's amazing how um, many of us miss it. And how many, if they're honest, really don't avail themselves. They don't make right use of, as it says in our, in our confession. They'll say that, you know, I, I went to church three weeks in a row and prayed and it just didn't get better. It's not, it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's a, like Enoch, walk with God, okay? It's, it's a, a longer process. Um, of, of engagement. So I'm saying this to you um, because I, I, I know personally, true, in my own life, I mean, I have the benefit of having to be here every week and, and I'm engaged in a way that I have, but, it, but you know, you can have a cold heart towards these things too. But it's tough. It's tough though for very long, especially when there's communion every week. I don't know about you, but like every week when we come to that, I have to think back on my relationships over the week and think about, you know, where have I sinned against people and it's unresolved. It forces me into an accountability that helps in that regard. Because that would be a temptation for me for sure, personally, is, is to hold grudges or to have, uh, when you're in leadership, that's one of the most common temptations is to hold grudges against people. To, you know, to, and and it, it taints your relationship and your ability. So the beauty of the means of grace, at least in my life with that regard, is that. Or an anger, like I, I can tend to be a, a fiery individual, if you will. Well, there's a difference between that and being angry at someone because we know what the Lord Jesus says about that. So there again, under the accountability of the word and the sacraments uh, and prayer, there's just a consistent reminder when those things start to come up. Um, at that level, we can start to deal with them. So I can't emphasize enough, first level on temptation, whatever, even the most severe temptation you're dealing with, uh, demands at the basic level that we avail ourselves of these um, means of grace. The second thing I'll say practically flowing is, when it comes to temptation, if you know something tempts you, and has caused you to fall before, 
it's fine to run away from that, to avoid that. That's not legalism, to not go into a bar because you're an alcoholic or not go into a buffet because you're a glutton. I mean, we just got to be honest with ourselves. We should not go into these settings. We should not go online unchecked if we cannot be self-controlled about what we're viewing. Even if you are self-controlled about what you're viewing, if you have a background, if you've been on porn for a long time, and you're, you're going to have to have some accountability with online. That is not weak. That's, just, that's actually strong and smart because you will fall again. If, if you just think, well, you know, I've, I've kicked that habit and uh, it's not going to affect me. It's, it's like the alcoholic kind of saying, you know, I can have a sip even though the only time, the last dalliance with alcohol was only ever to get drunk or, or super buzzed or whatever. So all of this has to be realistic. And that's part of confessing your sins, too, is you're saying this to the Lord. You know this is true. It'll help you avoid. So, and it says in 2 Timothy, flee youthful lusts. You don't, don't, don't mess around with lusts. Get away from them if you know they are. Now, that doesn't mean you should impose it on everybody else. It doesn't mean someone else can't go in a bar and have a drink. Just cause, so be, you know, be careful about that. But brothers and sisters, if you know somebody has an issue, don't bring them into the issue. Um, uh, it's not, it's, it's, sometimes I think in our Christian liberty, we flaunt things too much, and it's a danger to people. It's not smart at all. You know, the Christian liberty doesn't mean free to do whatever we want. It's free to obey God. That's really what it ultimately means, because sin is no longer holding us so tightly that we can't now, no, we've been freed, so now we can, it doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want. It's not licensed. So avoid um, things that trigger. Uh, stores or malls, or, or if you have a problem with constantly buying stuff online, um, you know, spouses have to talk this out, work this out. Um, but you have to avoid, I'm talking the second level, you have to avoid um, these things that cause you to possibly sin. Credit cards, uh, all sorts of things. No, nowadays it's so, I remember you used to have to put in your credit card info for everything. At least would, many times when I'd start that, like, eh, I quit after about the, the second four numbers. But now everything's Google Pay or whatever, you just click a button. I just swipe my, like whenever someone, Sherry tells me we need something or whatever, and it's like now and then I just go to Amazon and boom, boom, thumb. Now, that's fine for a lot of things, but like if it's, oh, there's a dull moment, I've got to buy something. I mean, really? You know, these are temptations, and um, they, they draw us away from our devotion to God and suck us into the thing that we're making an idol. So that's the second thing. Avoid situations, people. People sometimes, too. If you have an anger issue and you're always dealing with someone that wants to argue with you about masks or vaccines, you might want to avoid that discussion. And brothers and sisters, we shouldn't argue about all this stuff. Like, if you've got to always bring up a topic like that or whatever, um, that's not helpful for each other. Let's not put that in front of people, and let's not run into it either. And there are multiple other uh, things nowadays that you can avoid. And I don't mean avoid people, just, but you can learn to avoid conversations that don't need to happen that will make you angry, and then you're going to get it. Now, you've got to go to the root of the issue. I don't mean... If you have a problem with porn or a problem with buying or a problem with anger, I don't mean just run away from it and you solve the problem. You have to go to the core of what's making that happen. But in the first level, you've got to get out of the situation. My favorite example of this is Joseph didn't sit around and try to debate with Potiphar's wife about the situation. He got out of there. Full well knowing, he's no dummy. We know he wasn't a dummy. He had to know that this, if she, it was her word against his, he's going to lose. So, I mean, you might argue that the better, the better thing for him to do, worldly speaking, would be to give into it and keep it secret as long as he can. Now, he knew he can't. I, I'm, I'm just saying that what he did by fleeing it was purely because he didn't want to sin against God. He was going to pay for it by man, but he didn't want to sin against God. So I think that that's a great picture of sometimes the answer is you just drop your cloak and you run. That's what we're saying. The third thing I'll say before we get into this topic, and it works good with sanctification for sure. The third thing is... is I don't count this as a means of grace necessarily, like whether I count as a matter, but I think the way it writes and the confession 
describes it, that fellowship or the communion of the saints, your relationship with other people, is definitely a means that God uses to enhance the means of grace in your life. Or they, like when you receive the word in community, now we live it with each other and it, it try, it's, it's able to be tried on a bit. So I think community and accountability with other people would be the third thing I'd say. First one's means of grace. Second one is avoid situations that tempt you. And then the third one is get with people who will be honest with you and help you with a problem you may be having, a sin issue or an issue you may have. Go to someone and say, hey, brother, I got this problem. Um, I remember I said to Scott some time ago when social media first came out, I was getting into arguments with people about politics, which is the most worthless thing to debate about with people, let alone online. And I remember about five years ago, I said, Scott, tell me next time. Of course, I need to hold you, but that's another story. But anyway, uh, I said, Scott, if you see me say something, so it, it, it helped because a few times he'd say to me, yeah, you probably should. At that point, like, I shouldn't say any of this stuff. So let's, and it helped me a lot. Like, it steered me away from walking into, you got to have people in your life. Brother, I shouldn't drink it. I shouldn't be drinking. And I got to admit, I'm using an excuse. I travel sometimes. It's not working because I have this problem. So someone should, should talk to you about this. You should not be drinking every day, every night. Do, I mean, that, that's, not, that's messed up. Don't keep telling yourself that's part of your Christian liberty. Uh, someone's got to say it to you. And so if you love someone well enough, they're going to, but you should, how about first, you say, you know what, I got a problem with this. It's become a part of my life I depend on, and it shouldn't be. I got to buy something every night, you know, fill in the blanks, um, let alone same-sex attraction or illicit attraction, or, you know, like I have, you know, hold, men should have accountability in this area in some fashion with at least one person, a couple people. But here's the thing. If you just engage yourself in the community of Christ, you go to your home fellowship group, you start developing friends in that group, you go to Bible studies, you go to a study group that's happened at church, informal study with people, you're going to not just study the topic, you're going to start to get to know each other. You're going to ask what their issue, you know. And for men, it just takes men longer in this regard. You just spend more time and eventually you start crossing over in these areas and it gets deeper. It seems like the ladies can jump into it uh, quicker. Um, Whatever the case, however you find it, Find those personal relationships that then open up for accountability where you can share the things you're dealing with. Um, you know, when you're a parent and you, you stress about your kids all the time, there's a, a, a reasonable amount of that and there's an unreasonable amount of that. And it helps me when I talk to people who are ahead of me in their parenting line to give me some advice on how I shouldn't constantly think about what's going on with my kids or make my kids success whether I'm worthy or not. You know, how did you deal with this? And I, I mean, there's so many temptations, so many things, but people help each other in this regard. So that third one is communion with other people on the larger level and then down to the detail. And I'll say, one of the reasons why we accent biblical counseling is it's not, it's not um, some kind of a stigma to say, hey, let, come talk to the pastors for biblical counseling. That's just you trying to assess what is the issue, help someone else, have someone else with biblical eyes, help you see it through those lens and give you some ideas. What we do in counseling is not, we want you, we don't charge you so that you now have to come to us every week. And that's kind of how it is in practices. I mean, it, you know, like a chiropractor. I remember going there, uh, how long will it take me for my backfield? Oh, six sessions. Well, about the ninth session, they keep doing it. I'm like, you know, wait a minute, hold up. The six sessions ago, you're supposed to, well, you knew it wasn't going to take six. But once I'm in, I, that crack feels good, but I'm going to come back. Well, there's some of that in therapeutic stuff that happens today. Not all of it, but some of it. What we do here is pastoral biblical counseling. Come in, hey, what is the issue you're dealing with? Let's, help, let's look, through the, look to the scriptures for what it guides us and hold each other accountable to it. Go do some work on this. And this is, this is on a formal level, what happens, should happen all the time in our relationships. That's all. 
So I leave you with those three ideas for fighting temptation. There are others, others that could come up, but I thought those would be the ones that seem to come in my discussions the most with other people, and I have found personally to be the most effective in my own battle against temptation. All right, let's go into lesson seven, which actually is a, a beautiful backdrop for everything. It'll give you hope for how this can work and how you can see de the defeat of temptation. Obviously, the report is speaking of um, sanctification, this process of God making us more and more like Christ. There, it, it's, it's meant to be an encouragement to people, especially in this context, who may be battling with same-sex attraction. What could you hope for as someone who's battling with sin, this particular sin, in light of what the Bible says about God's sanctifying ministry in your life. But you could see this applies for any, with anything. Let's say it this way. This is how I like to describe to people to give you, you know, a certain excitement, I hope, about what God's doing in your life. Um, what happened when you became born again? Now, I'm not getting into the, the particular details of God's foreordination and election. That's all true in his, the pre-work he does in the person who's elect's heart. But just on a practical level, when you realize that you believe in Christ or you say you come to faith in Christ. Yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus is my Savior. I believe in you, Jesus. What's happened at that moment or happening at that moment? Well, multiple things, multiple miraculous things are happening. First of all, that indicates you've been regenerated. Um, for you to even lay hold of, of Christ, that means he's born you again. And when you're born again, um, multiple things simultaneously happen as one-time acts, if you will. Um, you are at that moment united to Christ, you're justified, and you're adopted. So you have all these things occur. The Holy Spirit regenerates you. He gives you faith to lay hold of Christ. And at the time you are in union, when you lay hold of Christ, you're in, you're in union with him, which, which entails all sorts of benefits. Um, you might say one of them is adoption, but it depends how you cut it. But the point is you're in union with Christ. You're justified before God. You're right before God because of Christ, because you're in Christ. You're in union with Christ. And you're adopted as a son or daughter. So it's not just a legal thing. It's a familial thing too. It's all-inclusive. These are immediately upon your being born again. All of those things occur. God does a work in you that declares you righteous. And then it begins another process. These are all one-time occurrences and placement. They have effects. But then begins the process that God continues. He finishes the work he's begun in you, and that's what we call sanctification. The ongoing process. The majority of your life on earth is spent in sanctification from the time you come to Christ. If you came to Christ later, I don't, it's not in years, but your experience and your cognition will be about this process of sanctification. Justification, it's one time. Sanctification, it's an ongoing, still a work of God's grace. Um, the way our catechism puts it, what is justification? It's an act of God's free grace, repardons all of our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. One-time act, that's justification. Um, what is adoption? Adoption is the act of God's free grace where we are received into the number and have a right and privilege. When we adopted our daughter, we got a form, we went to court, and the statement was made, witnesses were there, and I have a declarative statement in that adoption uh, guarantees my daughter all the rights and privileges that the rest of my, uh, must, rest of my children have, uh, equal with all of them um, in every way, shape, or form. This is right there. It's, it's legally, and, and I, the parent, can never deny that. And God would never deny that because we're adopted in him. So that's what we're, that's what we're talking about here uh, with adoption as uh, one of the, as a one-time act. Now, that continues to have great, great impacts because now we can say Abba Father and all the things that flow from it, but it's still a one-time legal act that results in a family relationship, which is father and child and so forth, the beauty of that relationship. What is sanctification? 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So it's the process of making us die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's a process, it's not finished until glorification, which is heaven. But it tells every sinner, no matter what your desire is, whatever your sin, who is redeemed in Christ, that God promises that he will weaken the flesh. He will weaken that power that's gripped us to the point where you can actually see there could be victory over this. There, there's, it, it may be slight, it may be, but it gives you hope that God promises that he will lessen the grip of your sinful desires, whatever they may be. And that's a promise that God gives that's connected to the accomplished work of Christ. It's not to say that you fail at it, would, it that's too much focus on you. It's God will not fail at this. Now, there's much to be said, and that's what the statement unpacks. But that's the biblical reality of what sanctification is, that he will weaken. And I'm telling you, every believer I know, though they struggle like they do and can feel very defeated, the fact that you're struggling and engaging with the feeling of defeat is in and of itself a sign of the weakening of the flesh. That God's, it's, it's sort of like when someone has, has a, a disease and the treatment gets started, in that initial, when they first start taking the medication, they feel worse than what they did because there's a war battling in them now. Now this antibiotic's going after this bacteria and they're fighting and your body's tired from the fight. But eventually, the antibiotic wins over and, and banishes the germ, right? That's the, the idea of what happens in the book. So you get stirred up and sometimes a struggle you have that you didn't experience when you weren't in Christ is because this war is waging within you, the flesh versus the spirit. Um, this is to be expected. This doesn't mean that you're not a believer because you keep struggling with it. And it sometimes pushes it into the forefront of your mind more, and that's part of the problem. And I think a lot of what's happening nowadays uh, with the same-sex attraction issue is because the culture's put so much pressure on it, it, it pressures people who are struggling with it um, to push it up to a, a, a more forefront issue. And this is where they, they want to identify, you know, and call because there's so much pressure put on the topic itself from the outside. Then when we talk about it, what does God's word say about it? It stirs up a bit of a battle, and it makes it challenge. And that's true. If, I say, if, I, if, you have a, if you have a drinking issue, and I just said what I said, right now you're feeling real uncomfortable, or you're buying too much stuff online. You have too many shoes in your closet, right? I mean, I got all this. I mean, this is just me throwing this out. But I know someone's sensitive to it, because that's where you're at. That's where you're at with things. Um, it's just the fact of the matter. That's how we, I, I, all the, you know, you hear a sermon, um, and you think the preacher's talking to you. He must be. I can't believe he's pinned. I'm not. I'm, I'm just, this is what it is. That's why you want to stick preachers, future preachers too, who may be in the room. Make sure you preach what the text says. Don't hobby horse it because the text will have plenty for the people to chew on and be convicted by. And hopefully you, you gain trust with the congregation after a while that he's not going to go pick out my thing and just, you know, bash me for it. But before you get there, you might just think, maybe God just wants me to hear this part of his word right now. And that's, the, that's the, the power of the word back to that. Now, let's go to the, the statement. You have it on, uh, and I'll stop with some sections and say a few things based on some of the footnotes that they give and then some extra uh, for no charge comments. All right, seven, uh, sanctification. We affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. This speaks right to what I was addressing earlier so in other words, we should not presume upon the benefits that we have received from Christ as an excuse for being lax in our obedience. We shouldn't uh, presume upon the gospel to practice license. There's two 
pitfalls. There's license and there's legal, legalism. Legalism thinks that if I, strict, if, I add some, if I add some fences around God's word, if I'm even more strict, then, then I'll be better before God or I'll be better than others before God. And, you know, that's the far dish. Not everyone thinks that way, but we will think in judgment of other people if they don't do things quite like us. And, but if I do this and I have a little more accept, that's, that's legalism or adding to God's word um, things that are, that, that are not in God's word explicitly. Um, on the other side is license. I'm saved. I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. It's okay. And those two lack uh, a mature understanding of what we, of Christian liberty, what we've been saved to. Um, so the sanctification point one here and the report wants to say, hey, we need to be fleeing immoral behavior and not yielding to temptation. Don't just use, obviously we will at times, but it goes back to what I started with. In 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Um, this has to do with not only fleeing away, but then look for the things that will backfill and um, you'll be able to put on. How can this be done? Look at the next statement. By the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. As you are under the means that God's appointed, it will necessarily start to weaken the flesh's hold on you. The more you're under the pronouncement of God's grace and his explanation thereof, the more you'll be weakened by. Many times when you talk to someone who's in the stronghold of whatever sin it is, and take the context here of sexual sin, um, they don't want to hear God's model for marriage, God's model for sexuality. Um, if you're in sin, it's always hard to hear that, but it's the thing we need to hear. Now, one of the, the things I need to work on in church teachers and preachers, how we administer the word you know, it sh it, it, we should not be condemnatory the way we administer it. The word will do its work without me yelling it at you or haranguing you with it or looking mad at you the whole time. Um, that's, the, that's the balance. Because a lot of what you'll hear from people is, I know what the Bible says, but they feel so condemned by the way it's being taught to them. And that's, that's uh, an important, uh, important feature for those of us who teach and preach and minister the word privately and publicly. We've got to find a way to gently describe the truth of God because a person already feels enough weight of sin, uh, let alone to come at it that way. And if they're coming to you to talk to you about it anyways, that's all the more reason to be gentle with them in our description. Still holding to the truth, but nevertheless realizing um, that this is, a, this is a heavy, heavy issue that's occurring in their life. But under the ordinary means of grace, you will start to find a weakening to those things that are underlying idolatries. And this is hinting at, you know, I mentioned all those presenting sins. You know, a porn problem is an idolatry problem underneath it. It always comes back to idolatry. That's kind of the center. And then the spokes or whatever, you know, the thing presents as. But the center is idolatry. It's idolatry of self. My desires. And this comes into the same sex attraction. My desires are what they are. And I, I think through the lens of my desires. I identify through the lens of my desires. Because it's so driving. Why is it so driving? Because it's an idol to you. It's the thing you care most about. And take it, it could be, I want you to think I'm great. You know, I want, I want to have popularity because I want to feel good that you think I'm something special. And it's, I'm, idol, I, I'm idolizing myself. Or I want to feel a certain way. I want to, these are all when we put ourselves at the center rather than is, what's the glory of God? Well, I don't feel, I don't want to be married to a woman. I don't feel that. But the Lord says that this is his model and this is what he wants you to pursue. It's not about whether you feel like you're going to do it. I got news for people that aren't married. Not every moment of marriage do you want to be married. I, 
some people don't. Not every moment of marriage are you attracted to your spouse in every way one could be attracted. The central feature of a marriage is not sexual attraction. It's become the thing that the culture wants to say, if you feel this way, this is how you know who you should marry. No, it's not. That's not the right way to judge whether you marry someone over sexual attraction. It's completely got it backwards. That's why there's so much trouble. And that's why the average celebrity can't stay married more than a few months. So with the means of grace, we weaken those underlying idolatries and sinful desires. If you keep feeding your sinful desires other stuff, you're going to build the desire. It's going to get more. I have this, there's these, everything's food to me, so that's what I got to say. I get this little, Sherry does, it's not me. She put me under this temptation. There's this, these, there's these, where is she? Is she here to repent? Uh, she's not here. Perfect. Anyways, um, it's a little thing of pretzels at Costco that have peanut butter in them fellow sinners, you know what I'm talking about. I identify as a peanut butter pretzel addict, not celibate. Anyway, so as I'm eating those things, I think I'm going to eat 10 of these things. That's all I need in the, in the pantry. No, I'll go take it next to my chair. And it, it, the more I eat them, the more I'm hungry for them. That's true of appetites. So if you feed yourself more of the thing that you're trying to walk away from, you're going to get hungrier for that, and you're not going to get hungry for the word. In fact, if someone says, hey, if Sherry Wood says, she never would, she goes, um, how about those being the last ones you eat? Don't tell me that. That's my reaction now. I'm such an appetite buildup for the pretzels that one voice of reason is not, I'm going to put it off. So now they've got to come harder to actually make me see straight. And that's what happens oftentimes. That's what's happening at a wider level. Um, culture has so perpetuated this thing, and there hasn't been um, confrontation personally and corp- all the things, and it's just making it more difficult now uh, on, the, on the communal level to deal with the issue, uh, the issue especially as in, in it relates to sexual uh, behavior and expression and so forth. So, the next statement. The goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, which is kind of what I've been emphasizing now. Got to start there anyways. But the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the love of one's heart towards Christ. Our goal is to, to see no more of this sin. I know we're not going to see no more of this sin till glory. But the scripture doesn't say you should stop going for that goal. Because as you go for that goal, obviously there'll be, there'll be steps forward, steps back, but there will be a gradual improvement all over the course of one's life. It is not for the purpose of seeing how far you get in your life. It's for the purpose of God being glorified that any improvement can happen in a sinner's life. So however much it is for you, that's not what we gauge it on. It's that God's doing this thing that's truly having someone turn from a different God themselves to the true and living God. And that happens every time we choose to uh, obey God as opposed to sin against him. It's, just, it's an act of worship to God, a, a sacrifice of your life to him. And we want to strive for that as though that can have a complete reordering. Now, what I see in people's lives, we talk about these things I've experienced myself, is that I do have periods in time in my life where I feel like there is victory over areas that have gripped me before. They're, they're genuine. They're real. Celebrate those. Can I fall back? In? I know I could. But the fact that there's been some victory helps me with the next time. And this is true of every feature of sin in our life, every aspect of sin in our life. Some are more difficult than others. I'm not trivializing some over others. But there can be a lessening of your desire for the sinful thing and a growing of your desire for the thing that God says is, is what he desires. That does happen in people's lives. It really does happen. Um, 
Ephesians 4 is probably the passage I think that um, helps us most here. And this is the language of putting off and putting on in Ephesians 4. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So it starts in the spirit of your minds and understanding the truth of the gospel, the truth of what it means, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there can be an expectation, brothers and sisters, that you will see victory in areas that you have felt defeated before. Small though they may be along the way, still God promises to give those to us. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. I mentioned that verse because here's the example. So we put away the thing that's bad, but then not only am I going to stop lying or stop saying things that are inaccurate or embellishing or spinning, I'm going to really seek to put on what is true because God is truth. So putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. One of the great attributes of someone who's really humble is that they just speak the truth about themselves and they don't have any, they don't have any insecurity about how you'll think about it because they only care that God knows they're telling the truth. That's a real sign of maturity that takes a long time and it, it ebbs and flows, it, it, especially when you're in positions of leadership or even as a parent. Um, you don't want to look like you have weakness, but you're incredibly weak and people really actually know it. As soon as you realize they know that the emperor has no clothes, the better off you are. But it's hard because you don't like to have, you know, and, and you can see how this struggle happens in our lives in one area, and you can extrapolate it into many others that you might. Some people have no trouble. Hey, I don't, I, I'm just completely self-abasing and have no issue. Other people, it's a real struggle to let down guard and look weak before someone. Um, that's true of all sin issues as far as how we wrestle with them. You, thank God, though, you probably, all of us have a couple of these that we're, some just don't resonate. You're like, that's not a problem for me at all. I have zero trouble with drinking but I'll go eat a half a gallon of ice cream in the name of righteousness, and I'm not a drunk. Right, so whatever it is, there'll be something that one of us doesn't have trouble with, the other one does That's another way we can help each other, by the way. But here's the key phrase. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. So where's the power we get for this? Where does, where's the basis for our hope that we can have some victory? Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we can make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, we can expect to see substantial progress in areas. Now, substantial, depending where you are, is relative, but we can expect to see some of that. In Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are you to sin because you are not under law but under grace? By no means. No, that's not what you do with this Christian liberty you've been granted, freedom from the, the law and sin and death. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Um, the person who's really licentious and thinks to themselves, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, they ain't saved. The person who really thinks they're not afraid of God's wrath because Jesus saved me from sin, so I'm going to go do whatever, that per, do whatever is not a sign of someone's regenerate. That's, that's someone who's not been gripped by grace, has not been compelled by the love of Christ. So that extreme goes one way. The other person who thinks, you know, by doing these things, I'm definitely more, that person's probably not either. But the point being here in this statement from Romans, you are free from the law of sin and death, so you're not free to go sin anymore. And if you just give yourself to sin, you're going to be slave of that, and the actual truth will be known, essentially. 
but says in Romans 6.17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the feeling of guilt you have over sin, it's, it's offset by the feeling of conviction you have to follow God's, God's word. That's the, that's the way it offsets. In Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without, without which no one will see the Lord. So the improvement that Christians experience in their life, the way that God makes your life more holy or more sanctified, is in and of itself a bit of a statement or a proclamation of the saving work of God. It does, it's not what saved you, but it demonstrates salvation, which is a holiness that people can see, a change that people can see, uh, that makes them, how does that person, how did that change occur in their life? And, and then they're drawn into who made that difference, and it's God who made that difference. In First John 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In our confession of faith, it says in the chapter 13 on sanctification, they who were once effectually called regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more qui- are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the, pra- the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So basic language from our confession used here in the statement. Let's go to the nevertheless, the nevertheless statement. It's one large sweeping statement that really captures Kind of a good, good conclusion to how, uh, what we're, all, we're saying. Nevertheless, this process of sanctification, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in at the application of the means of grace, will always be accompanied by the many weaknesses and imperfections with the Spirit and the flesh warring against one another until final glorification. It's that war I told you about, like when you take the medicine that starts to do its work, it's going to be um, a bit of a, a bit of a battle inside of you. And that unrest you feel is not reason to pitch it because you won't find happiness going back to whatever it was that you think that you're being, you're being kept from now. I've heard people say once they become believers, oh, my life was easier before. No, you just didn't know where it was heading before and you didn't know what it was doing and you couldn't see it. Now you do and that's tough. It's very difficult. But you don't want to go back. Don't go back to Egypt kind of a statement. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh, but this progress will often be slow and uneven. So it's reasonable to say if that's a struggle you have, it will, it'll be an ongoing battle. Hopefully the battle will become less, but the fact that you have an ongoing battle doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian or you're not saved or any of these things because you can fill in the blank with other things. But it is normal, I think, as it relates to our sinful condition, to see difficulty with this ongoing. So I, I would never promise somebody who comes and says, I have same-sex attraction, I'm trying, that I would never tell them, you'll never, this can, we could pray the gay away right now and you'll never have this problem. That, that's not fair of any sin that you should say to it. Now that's not to make trite the fact that we should go to God with, and ask him for help. There's nothing that's completely called for. But it is a very complex interwoven reality that we as sinners deal with across the board. If you can't understand that sin, think of some sin that you keep going back to. Just pick one or two of them right now. I'll give you more time. Pick three or five of them. You know what I'm saying. 
you're continually having to struggle with it, but you, you have seen some improvement, hopefully, over the, and that's, it, there's no difference here. The issue is the, the matter is more intimate and personal, so it affects a person in their thinking more. We have to be patient with that and appreciate that and understand that's going to, in the world we live in, it's going to constantly be telling that person a different message. So we have, our response to the person who really wants to obey what God says in this is give them all the patience and care and compassion we can give them while they struggle through this. It should not be a, you got to quit this. You got to stop thinking like that. You got to quit being that way. God's going to judge you. That is not the answer you give to somebody who's asking for God's mercy because of the situation they're dealing with. We'll say more about this in the future statements. There's a lot of pastoral points there that are very helpful. Um, moreover, the process of mortification and vivification, killing sin and living unto God. The process of mortification and vivification involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires. It is not simply based on this one matter. It's very likely that a person, I know plenty of people that are, who, have, who, who will confess a, a battle with same-sex attraction that are incredibly spiritually mature people. It's like that's the one area that's an I- issue for them. Where I got like 15 areas at any time that just are a little more, a little more tolerable, right? So... It's complex. It's not just this area of our life. It's the whole of our life that we should be thinking of as it relates to sanctification. The aim of sanctification, this last statement, in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex, though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a holistic. It's not one sin issue. I know we're studying a topic because it's the kind of the, the topic of the day. It's the cultural issue. But I think if we would lay hold of the total teaching of the Bible on this, it would help us across the board in our growth and grace and our patience with one another as fellow sinners. May we never be a place that does not welcome every struggler, every struggler who's dealing with, because everybody here is struggling with something. And maybe we could do better to be more honest about the totality of our struggles. I don't mean like get up in church and, you know, get to the mic and tell, but just in our general relations. Now, I don't know for sure. Maybe a lot of you are very transparent. Um, but just more open about all the struggles we do deal with it would help from stigmatizing one of them because there's so many of them that we deal with. Yet, so great is all this sin, but so great is all the salvation that we receive in Christ. And that's the message we want the sinner to receive. That's the message we come looking for all the time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to just briefly contemplate the doctrine of sanctification, the teaching of your word that gives us great hope about the work that you are doing in us. I pray, O Lord, that you would encourage my brothers and sisters here today, whatever their struggles may be, that they would uh, find their wholeness in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.